Welcome to The Hut Near The Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. You know, people talk about getting stuck in their lives. So there's that sense of I'm not moving anymore. I'm stuck. And the heroic journey is this idea that you need to find a way out of that stuckness because our life is a constant journey. We're moving through the years. We're getting older. Our situations are changing. Our families are growing up. Our careers are moving on or we're retiring and so on. Everything is changing. The climate is changing, you know. Um, So we have to really be able to monitor our own change and if that change stops and gets stuck at a certain point that's where we perhaps need a bit of heroism because heroism requires you to face your fears to break out of what's holding you in there's a lot of phrases for it like slaying the dragon like um you know pushing out the envelope and thankfully in our own irish and celtic tradition there's a whole history of the heroic journey going back to pagan times the, uh, the journey of, of Bran, um, they were generally called Imram, I-M-R-A-M. And they that sort of idea of, of it's an idea of wandering, really, um, was continued in the early Celtic Christian tradition where the monks, the Irish monks, were great at wandering. Dara Malai is a truly fascinating individual. Along with the likes of John O'Donoghue and John Philip Newell, Malloy is considered to be among one of the few experts on the subject of Celtic spirituality. In this episode, I sit down with Dara to discuss his spiritual journey from Roman Catholic priest in Dublin to Celtic priest, monk and druid on Inishmore, the largest of the Iron Islands. We also discuss a number of topics explored in Dara's upcoming book titled Holy God, journey from belief in God to a spirituality. These include what Celtic spirituality is and how it differs from organised religion, how the dominant religions have misunderstood the notion of faith and why monotheism and its globalisation is a root cause of the loss of both cultural diversity and biodiversity on the planet. In the final part, Dara shares his personal wisdom and recommends that we explore the vast resources that can be found in the Celtic spiritual tradition. Dara, I would like to thank you so much for coming on the Hut Near the Bog. You're very welcome. I'm very excited to talk to you. Great. And uh, Dara, can you start by telling me a bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm just turned 70. I'm 71 years of age. I'm married to Tess Harper, who's younger than me. Um, we have four kids who are now 
moving into adulthood. One boy and three girls. We live on Inishmore on the Iron Islands, the northernmost island. Um, and I suppose that brings me to explain how I managed to get to live on Inishmore because both my wife and I are from Dublin. I grew up in Malahide. My wife grew up in Santry. We were 16 years apart, so wasn't much chance of meeting growing up or anything like that. But I had a spiritual path in my mind for myself from the age of 12. And in very Roman Catholic Ireland with Roman Catholic parents, it sort of led me automatically into studying for the priesthood, like many other young men of that time and women into the into the nuns as well. And uh, so I studied to be a Marist priest. I did all my studies. I got ordained and then I was appointed to teach in a school. And that's really when things began to, uh, I suppose, become a crisis for me because there were always aspects of the church that I didn't like. I liked the gospel. I liked Jesus. I liked the overall vision, which was sort of very idealistic. Um, but I didn't like the institution. I didn't like the authoritarian structure. I didn't like the male hierarchy. I didn't like living in an artificial world with other men uh, in an institutionalized way. And then being pushed teaching in a school actually made it worse because school is very institutionalized as well. And that didn't suit me either. What suited me at the time, and I had experience of this as a seminarian, was working in a youth club where the youth came because they wanted to come and where the activities that we were involved in in the youth club were activities that kids signed up to. So you could announce you're going to have a photography class and if nobody joined it, you didn't have the class. Do you know what I mean? And then school is so totally different to that. Um, so a less institutionalized structure would have suited me, Grant, and, but I hit a crisis. And uh, in the, at the end of the day, my escape route was to move out to the Iron Islands. I was very attracted to the Celtic heritage. I discovered that Irish monks had lived on the Iron Islands, especially on Inishmore from the 6th century onwards. And it was sort of, you know, get back to nature, get out into nature, get rooted back into my own culture, my own traditions, get to learn more about the Celtic spiritual tradition rather than the Roman spiritual tradition. So it all attracted me and made a lot of sense. I moved out here in 1985 to be a hermit. So still a Catholic priest, but on the edge now. And um, I learned that to be a hermit in the Celtic tradition means you just have three walls to your hut. That's metaphorical. I did have four walls to my hut, but metaphorically, one wall was open to the world. And if people came, you had to respond to them. That was the role that a hermit played, even though they lived on their own. They had to be open to the world and to everyone who came to their door. So I ended up opening a thatched cottage as a sort of an open house next to my wooden hut. And people came and went there all the time. And that's how I lived for 10 years. So through all that process, I met my future wife. And after 10 years of living as a hermit in 1995, actually ended up being 1996, so 11 years, if you like, uh, I had got so distant from my religious order, so alienated from the mainstream church, and that it would take very little to push me over the edge. And what pushed me over the edge was a letter issued by Pope John Paul II to state that we were no longer allowed as a church, as clergy, as teachers of religion, to even discuss the notion of women's ordination. 
and I more or less said, "Fact that I can't, I can't belong to an organisation that's such so so dictatorial and so patriarchal that won't even allow you to discuss a subject, not a mind to bring it into being." So I had to decide to leave, and that was the most painful, the most difficult, the most earthquake-like experience and frightening experience of my life, because I knew it would cause huge disruption in the local community here in the Iron Islands, and also huge disruption in my own family, which it did. And it actually hit the headlines in the media as well. So it sort of became a bit of a stir throughout the country at the time, because it was in the middle of Bishop Casey and a few other scandals going on. And I just, my story was another one of those in a way, even though I don't think mine was a scandal, but it was just me leaving the church and wanting to do something different within the Celtic side of things. So that's what led me then to be a priest, because I did not want to not be a priest. But I said, I'm going to have to try and be a priest without being a member of any church. And that was, I couldn't find any mentors for myself in that area. So I just had to feel my way. And I've ended up after another, like that was 1996, after another, what, uh, 20 something years, 24 years. I now am more or less full time uh, offering services to people in the Celtic tradition. In a broad sense, I'm not anyway dogmatic about it, but offering weddings, funerals, vow renewals, baby namings, even christenings, but not in the institutional sense, and er everything in between um, as a freelance Celtic priest. So that's where I'm at at the moment, yeah. So building upon that, I suppose, what is Celtic spirituality, Dara? Well, it's something that I discovered uh, in my adulthood. I knew nothing about it in my childhood. I hadn't even been told about Fionn McCool or Cúchollin in my schooling. Sadly, I missed out on all of that. Um, and I certainly knew nothing about the Irish saints, uh, that the, the myriads of Celtic saints that are to be found, it's like their memories to be found in every part of Ireland. I knew nothing about any of those. So I had to really start from scratch. And what led me into it was a visit to the Iron Islands in 1982 before I moved to live here at all. That's really what started the whole ball rolling. And that sort of fired up my interest and I began to read and learn about it. And what I'd say now, after all these years of trying to live Celtic spirituality, is that it's a spiritual tradition. It's not a church. It's not a religion. It's a tradition that's part of a culture, part of a people, part of a way of living that people on the very edge of Europe developed. Of course, the Celtic civilization was all across Europe at one stage, but eventually was pushed out to the margins. And now it's part of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, Cornwall, maybe, and a few other very small places where you had get the remnants of it. And it's just it was just the way of life of those people. I think what's interesting about Celtic spirituality as a tradition is that it was clearly a pagan tradition long before Christianity ever came. And the people of that tradition believed in all sorts of gods and goddesses whose names, many of whom are still around, like Lu meaning the month of Lunasa, and carry, carry the name in the month of Lunasa, which means August, or like Eriu, the goddess of the land, whose name is now in the name Ireland. Um, so, you know, there's echoes of this very ancient tradition still around. Um, but then the interesting thing for me is that it became a Christian, it became Christianized at a certain point, not by oppressors or colonizers or armies coming in from outside to impose it upon us, but by us Irish people expressing an interest in it and taking an aspect of it that appealed to us, that we were attracted to, which was the monastic side of it. 
uh, which is very different from the European side of it at the time when, when monasticism began here, which was a very small part of the main major dominance of Christianity across Europe, which was mostly based in cities. We didn't have any cities. So we were interested more in the rural type of Christianity, which was expressed through the monasteries. And that led to um, a version of Christianity in Ireland that's very different from mainstream Christianity. And it's not reflected really in any of the other Christian expressions you'll find in the world today. So it's quite a unique version of Christianity, which I like and I'm very attracted to. So that's what Celtic spirituality is for me. So, Dara, you say in your upcoming book titled Holy God, Journey from Belief in God to a Spirituality of Experience, that organized religion is the politicization of spirituality. How does this differ? How does Celtic spirituality differ in this sense? OK, well, let's let's just take that phrase and um, because it sort of sums up my, my point of view at the moment, which is that religion is the politicization of spirituality. So let's take spirituality first. I would define that, and other people might have a different definition of it. I would define spirituality as the meaning that you put on the life that you experience. So it's all sort of the background joining of the dots that you make to explain what's going on in your life, why you are the person you are, what you want to do with your life, and so on. Um, So it can be a very personal thing. Um, Religion then is... Is I'm, I'm in religion. The word I'm using for religion is is meaning organized, institutionalized religion. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about organized, institutionalized religion, and the ones that I know <laughs> uh, tend to be very hierarchical and also authoritarian. So, if you like, the religion has the answers and they, it gives the answers to you. That means that you don't find your own answers. You hand that responsibility for finding answers over to an organization, which really hands over some of your power uh, to that organization. Because when you have a spirituality of your own, it empowers you. It sort of makes sense of your world. It gives you a feeling that you know what you're doing or you know how, what you know how to respond to situations because you've got a sort of a plan in your head uh, and understanding. When you hand that over to an institution which then has a certain power over you, that's what's happening. You're handing over that power to them. And I can see that. I mean, maybe the best way to to describe that is to just talk about the history of Ireland in the last 100 years. As I was growing up, John Charles McQuaid was the Archbishop of Dublin. It turns out that John Charles McQuaid greatly influenced the writing of our constitution, our Irish constitution, which we have to this day. And also... Um, later on in his uh, in archbishophood, he interfered in the planned legislation of the government called the Mother and Child Scheme, uh, which was uh, proposed by the Minister for Health, Noel Brown, at the time. And he intervened so much that the uh, that the government fell. Um, there's an example of right religious power being exercised to control a society, not a mind, an individual. You know, but there's so many examples of in Ireland especially, of people being controlled by the institutional church. Uh, So spirituality, which should be something liberating for a person, something empowering for a person, in this case became something that uh, oppressed you in a way. Absolutely. Uh, That's getting me thinking. So, you know, it interests me because uh, the way Ireland has moved in the last 50 so or odd years, 
it, it is more of a dispersal of power. That top-down structure of power is is starting to disperse. And even the way we interact with our politicians and members of the clergy, we, we don't have hold them in the same regard as we would have even 20 years ago. And I think that's perhaps is a good thing, but it means that uh, there's more inf- inf- emphasis placed on the individual. And one thing you speak about in the book is, well, as I understand it, is about placing that emphasis again on the individual, taking the power for our own spirituality back. And I think there, that seems to chime with mod, like contemporary ways of living in many ways, because even if we look at, for example, the therapeutic approaches to uh, if people are dealing with emotional issues, that the whole idea of a therapeutic approach is to be able to enable and facilitate the person to find their own answers. And that seems to be more what, if I understand correctly, in terms of spirituality, that seems to be what you're advocating for, that the power of the individual and allowing people to find their own answers. And that that is, that the, the, the church or the dominant religions are out step with that point of view. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It, it is if the churches or religions are uh, authoritarian or they're telling you that they're right, they're certain, and that you need to follow their rules or you'd be damned or, or lost or burnt in hell. Um. But it doesn't mean that an individual who finds their own meaning for life and their own spirituality can't be part of a sort of a flow or a spiritual tradition, which is sort of flatter. It's not, there's no power concentration in a tradition, normally speaking, unless unless you go to a guru or a shaman or, and you give that power to somebody um, within the tradition. Uh, you hold on to your own power, but you uh, you use the tradition, as I do in, in the Celtic tradition, you use it to find uh, wisdom, to find inspiration, to find insights, to find a sort of a, a sort of an overall structure for the meaning you want to give your life. And I find that in Celtic spirituality, not exclusively. It doesn't mean I don't find it anywhere else, but I find huge inspiration within the Celtic tradition. One thing that stuck with me when I was reading the book was you seem to think that globalization is uh, an issue for you know diversity for you seems to be the key to the, the key to sustaining the earth and ourselves that's my understanding and you see globalization as kind of an adverse adversary of that in one sense um one i think somebody who's a, a, a an advocate of globalization could could arguably point to the fact that minority movements such as lgbt rights and black lives matter have in fact benefited from the opening of society or the opening up of society associated with globalization. So I think, you know, in, in short, I think one could claim that globalization has been an enabler rather than an inhibitor of diversity. Does does this point weaken your argument? And if not, why not? Okay, well, it's going to be difficult for me now to give some succinct answer to that because I need to sort of go into, go into it a little bit to explain where I'm coming from there. But I think it's worth it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Go for it. We've yeah. plenty of time. First of all, first of all, we're we're today we're we're faced with an emergency in biodiversity. Just the other day, the World Wildlife Fund uh, made another report, and they're coming all the time. That in the last fifty years, seventy percent of the population of the world's species, other than humans, have disappeared. Like that's completely and utterly shocking and catastrophic. Where are we going to end up if this continues? Biodiversity is disappearing at an exponential rate and it requires instant response. So some something about the way we're living in the world today is totally out of kilter. 
and it's, so it's biodiversity is a huge problem and it's only getting worse. And climate change is a huge problem and it's only getting worse. And those are two direct results of humans living on this planet. So we're not living in the right way. And okay, so let's look for the causes. Well, globalization is certainly one very big uh, issue in, in, in the sort of progress of humankind on this earth. And what I'm saying is, first of all, that globalization, and especially the globalization of God, which I think lies behind all globalization at the moment, uh, that that has become so dominant a structure of our thinking, you know, that 54% of the world's population now believes in the one God, first announced to us by Moses in the Judaic tradition, but then became part of the Christian tradition, then became part of the Islamic tradition, and is part of other religions as well. And that notion that there's just one God out there, and it's far away, our Father who art in heaven, that phrase, uh, he's way out there, it's a he, he's single, and he looks at the whole earth from a detached sort of alienated position. And that's, if you like, the perspective of globalization. It sees the globe as a whole. Now, if you compare that with uh, societies that were around at the time of Judaism developing its first, the first expression of monotheism, as you know, was in Judaism. As Judaism is developing that, it's surrounded by societies that are all polytheist. Now, I'd, I'd like to think about polytheism for a minute. Polytheism to me is like, it's like the flea on the back of a, an elephant. And the flea is asked to describe where it is. And depending on where the flea is on the elephant, the flea will describe a certain aspect of the elephant. But no flea is capable of seeing the whole elephant. That's the approach of polytheism. Polytheism mm. appreciates that there's a great mystery out there, that there's greater powers than ourselves in the world. And it's, it's not difficult for us to appreciate this if we think about it for a minute. Just look at the stars at night if you're not in a lit up street where you can't see them. Just think about the fact that we humans on this planet Earth have only arrived at the very last second. If you think of the Earth's life as 24 hours, we're just arrived in the last second. You know, think of the size of this planet to the size of the universe. It's one to six multiplied by 10 to the power 27. So the six and 27 knots after it to one. That's us. We're the one. The rest of the universe is the rest. Like we are tiny. How can we think we can see the meaning of everything? How, do, how can we think we can see the whole elephant, which in our case is the God, is God, one, the one God? The polytheistic societies, and there are many of them all around, including the Celts, including the Native Americans, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, we have lots of examples, um, they all were more humble and felt that they could only see a part of the great mystery. And that part is then manifested in their idea of a particular deity. Most of their deities were humans, male and, male and female, um, but some of them were animals and other, other creatures as well. So they're struggling to understand the great mystery and they cannot see the whole picture, so they give you lots of particular images of it that all have a certain authenticity, I think. So there's the difference. So when monotheism came along, it could only work in an authoritarian society because people had to be told, this is the way you must think. 
You must believe in this God. If you look at the Ten Commandments, which are still so much part of Western civilization, the first three commandments tell you about God, how you must believe in him, how you must honor and respect him, how you must obey him, and how you can't have any other God in your life. It's like it's top down from there on. Um, And also, it promotes a sense of we know it. We know the answers because this God has spoken to us. We have a certain we have a certainty. We have an arrogance and it allows us to push our way and neglect and ignore all other ways. So there's there's the sort of there's the formula for getting rid of diversity. Whereas whereas in evolution and we've learned a lot about evolution in this last century, evolution is exactly the opposite. When evolution produces uh, the next generation, it, it gives you a spread of uh, of possibilities. Even in my own family, I have four kids. None of them are me. None of them are clones of me or of my wife. They're all different. And every parent knows this. Every child of every parent is different. And they won't find any person in the world identical to that child that they have given birth to. That's what evolution does at every level. It naturally creates diversity. We're trying through globalization for many, many decades now to do exactly the opposite. We're trying to create a homogenous world where we all wear the same clothes, listen to the same music, eat the same food, speak the same language. It's not going to work. We need more balance. It's not that we need to get rid of globalization. It needs We need to balance globalization with diversity. And I don't just mean other living species. I mean our own cultural diversity as well, our own languages, our own ways of living, We need all sorts of different perspectives, different spiritualities. That's the best way forward. That's that's the formula of evolution. And it's worked for evolution. And we're part of evolution. Therefore, we should follow that formula. Mm. Absolutely. And I I would certainly I'd certainly agree with with that, that overall view. I do think that, as you said, I think that's an interesting point that you make there in terms of you're saying that it's not necessarily that globalization in itself is a bad thing or that or maybe it's the way that it is right now but can globalization be used in a way that will enable us to achieve that diversity can for example the way i think the way technology is moving now i think even though there is this homogenization of the the world there seems to be little sprouts no matter how you no matter no matter how much you try to uniform us uh, i mean the world there always seems to be an element of um, subversion or an element of rebellion or an element of wanting to be different there seems to be something at the core of what it means to be human to be different and i think you can see that in the world right now in many ways there is this homogenization 100 percent. but so the question i suppose i'm asking is is how do we use globalize can can we use globalization to achieve this kind of diversity uh in terms of our 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 approach to spirituality but broadly as well speaking can we use it to achieve that kind of diversity or is it is is it doomed or damned no i think we can use it to achieve this diversity the best image i have for it at the moment is a boat with lots of people on the boat like i live on a very small island on inishmore our ferry comes over and back with a maximum of 300 people on board Although we're just about to get a new one, which will afford it, seaters, seats. Um, mm-hmm. But the image, the image that works for me is sometimes dolphins appear in the water when we're sailing out to the Iron Islands on a lovely day like today. And if, if they do, there's a tendency for all of us to go over to that side of the boat to have a look at them. And the crew on the boat are very quick to put us back in our seats 
because that would topple the boat if we all go over one side. What's happening in the world today is we're all viewing our life on this planet from one perspective only, and that's the monotheistic perspective. And that's tipping the boat way over to one side. And that's what's causing the emergency in a metaphorical sense. So what we need to do is get back and spread ourselves out across the boat. So, of course, uh, globalization or the globalized view of the world can be a factor in that, but it must be balanced with lots of other perspectives. And the idea would be that each person on the boat is standing in a different place on the boat with a different perspective and that we listen to everybody. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I, I, again, I think I come back to that point I made earlier on, but something you seem to advocate is the idea that uh, organized religion is out of step, out of kilter because of this kind of uh, at what its heart is, this homogenization or this kind of one one perspective imposed on everyone. And I think that uh, that seems to be out of step with contemporary contemporary ways of living. So I think that Celtic spirituality seems to certainly be a, a viable uh, alternative. I mean, obviously, you're you're not just advocating for Celtic spirituality in that sense. You're you're advocating for any kind of spirituality. If I'm right, am I correct in saying that? Oh, absolutely. I'm yeah. advocating for diversity. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. But I think if you take Celtic spirituality as one example, it seems to me that um, there is a diversity within that in terms of the way we the way we interact with, like even the fact that you're, I find really interesting is that there's these two layers to Celtic spirituality. So there's the Christian layer and there's the pagan layer. Mm. And um, just the fact that you're able to embrace all of those aspects, you're not particularly anchored to any particular perspective, but many different perspectives and allows for that individuality. So I certainly think that in terms of guiding us spiritually, it certainly seems to be, a, it seems to be in step with modern ways of living. Is that correct? Or would you agree with that sentiment? Yes, it is. There's a, there's a natural urge in us to create diversity. If you go back to the early church after Jesus died, there was no, uh, her, her, he didn't create a church. He didn't create an institutional structure. He didn't form a company, you know, with a CEO. Um, and people went off. And in fact, because Jerusalem happened to be uh, sacked by the Romans after Jesus' death, everybody was scattered. And so the story about Jesus went in all directions. And everywhere it went, people interpreted that story differently. And so you had a huge variety of of interpretations of the life of Jesus and of who he really was. And it led to, as you know, probably lots of different gospels and lots of different epistles and uh, it was only like hundreds of years later when the church got more institutionalized that it decided we're only going to use this, that and this uh, to be the canon of sacred scripture. And every other gospel and every other letter is sort of dumped or it's heretical or whatever. So the, so the, the natural urge in all of us is to create diversity. When Christianity mm-hmm. developed first, it became very, very diverse. And Celtic Christianity is an example of that diversity which survived longer than most. Most were condemned as heresies very early on, as soon as the church began to get institutionalized, which was in the fourth century. And interestingly, the impetus for institutionalizing it was the Roman Empire. It was the emperor himself, rather than the bishops or the leaders of that church. It was the emperor said, look, get your act together. You're all arguing and fighting over this, that and the other within your church. I want want the church to be part of the empire. So you're going to have to have one formula that everybody subscribes to and that's going to be it and so he pushed the church to set up this apostles creed 
which became known at the time as the Nicene Creed because of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And that became a list of what people had to believe. And if they didn't believe in that, they were heretics and they could be exiled, burnt at the stake and so on, as we know. Uh, So that sort of then set up the whole structure that the emphasis of religion was on what you believed. What I've discovered in Celtic spirituality is that the emphasis is not at all on what you believe. It's on what you experience. And the, the tradition, the Celtic tradition, teaches you how to live in such a way that you improve the quality of your spiritual experience. And I'm not talking about taking drugs or stuff like that. I'm mm-hmm. talking about living in such a way that you're close to things that are wonderful, to experiences of the mysterious, to a sense of awe, to a sense of presence. These are all words that I use. You know, other people may find other words to use it, but it's like, what are the experiences in my life that takes me out of the normal and the day-to-day into something more wonderful, more mysterious, more magical? Um, It's the beauty of the landscape. It's the wonder of a new baby or of a young child growing up. It's animal life. You know, it's the sunset or the sunrise and so much else. There's this huge sources of wonder and mystery in our lives. If we can only surround ourselves with them and, and, and find ways to sort of immerse ourselves in it. And I think what Celtic spirituality teaches, both in the Christian version and in the pagan version, is that when you do that, you get in touch with something beyond yourself. You get in touch with the mystery of life itself. And that the experience of that mystery is good enough. It may raise questions in you, and that's fine, but it doesn't need to give you answers. And there's no evidence that the Irish Christian monks were in any way interested in debating theology. There's no evidence that they ever condemned one another for heretical beliefs or anything. It looked like they were really tolerant of whatever you believed, whatever you want for yourself, that's fine. What's really important is how you live your life and how you can perfect your life, how you can be a better person tomorrow than you were today. Mm. That's a, a very, very interesting and uh, a, a very appealing in many ways. Um, one thing I picked up on in the book was that at one point, the dominant global religions certainly had, a, they were beneficial. They, they played a role in society that was probably necessary at that particular historical point. So what what was that? Was there a particular point? Is there something you in particular you can point to there or just wondering, is there, could we explore that a, a little bit? Yes, yeah, we'd have to, um, we would have to explore it. Like, I, I don't want to go back through history and say everything has been wrong up until now and I'm right from here on in to know, because mm-hmm. yeah. I'd be just making the same mistake as everybody else made in the past, uh, that, that I have certainty and that I know what's right and what's wrong. I don't. I'm exploring like anybody else. Uh, so I'm sort of saying that, you know, everything has its time. I, I had a visit to Egypt myself uh, quite a number of years ago through the benefactor a friend of mine who brought me out there and um, I got a day to visit um, the Mount Horeb where they got the where Moses supposedly got the Ten Commandments and where he had the experience of the burning bush when he was a younger man and one of the things I did when I went there um, was I took my shoes off and I walked over to the burning bush and in my mind I spoke to Moses and I said to him uh, Moses, uh, I want to thank you very much for your contribution to our world. You've been around now for three or more thousand years and 
you've, your view of life has been a major contribution to where the world is today. And there's lots of positives in that world. So I want to thank you for it. But I also want to say to you that I think your time is up, that it's time now to move on, that you gave us the image of a one God uh, and a, a certainty around that, a sort of a, a confidence that we knew more than we actually did. Um, and now we're realizing the bits that we didn't know and that are causing us problems at the moment. So um, I, I'm hoping that you won't mind it, it, that it, you recognize to yourself that it's time to let go of that contribution that you made. It's done its service for us and it's time to move on. So that would be sort of my, my summary position, if you like, that, mm. you know, it did its bit. And it certainly brought a lot of benefits to the world. And I think we can see those. It's, it's like the old thing in the, uh, and, and, and then the, um, oh God, I can't think of the name of the film now, you know, where, what did the Romans ever do for us? And then you get a long list of what they did. You know, mm-hmm. what Moses did is huge. He made a huge contribution, but it's still limited and it's time is up. That's how I'd feel. Mm-hmm. Do you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, your 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 criticism of monotheistic religions it reminds me somewhat of two philosophers. Um, so Hegel, have you ever come across the philosopher Hegel? Yes, I, mean, I have. Yeah, yeah, of course. So Hegel, of course, is uh, one of the points of views he tries to make is, or one of the arguments he makes is about this uh, phenomenology of spirit or this this kind of movement in history towards this, we're constantly moving in this positive way towards this kind of utopian. And it's so it's associated with idealism, but uh, in Hegel became incredibly popular in, in the 19th century in Europe, particularly in Denmark is one in one place. He, he became particularly popular. And of course, uh, Kierkegaard, uh, he was incredibly critical of Hegel because <clears throat> he saw Hegel as impose Hegel's philosophy is imposing this kind of one world view or this kind of uh, this 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 view of Christianity that was very much associated with the socialization. So one one was one was just a, a Christian by behaving in a particular way. But Kierkegaard was critical of that because he saw faith and the relationship with God as as as, as entirely up to the individual and. Uh, one through this struggle of faith that they were finding they would find themselves they would find themselves through this struggle of faith with god that christianity is a christ to be a true christian is to be in that struggle of faith and of doubt and to find yourself your true self in that sense and it's not this kind of socialization process or this one world view of christianity that you behave in a particular way so that and then again if i go to emmanuel levinas he was a french um phenomenologist, uh, philosopher from the 20th century, he was critical of Hegel for uh, imposing this view of uh, this kind of epistemological view or this view of how we understand the world. In again, it's it's not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily a criticism of, of Hegel's view of Christianity, but um, Hegel's view of how we understand the world and the way we've the way Levinas associates our understanding of or how how we go about understanding the world is with this uh, association with being and thought that everything about the nature of existence is what we associate with the way we think about it, and uh, that way of thinking about it exactly fits in with I think it fits in with what you're saying because well I think they both fit in with what you're saying because I think first off I think clearly you're, you're pointing to the fact that. 
uh, it, you're not saying Christianity in particular, you're talking about a diversity in terms of spirituality, but it's a thoroughly individual thing and it's about finding your own, your own answers, finding your own way and respecting other people's ways. But also in terms of how we understand things, there are things that we will never know. And Levinas is very emphatic in that, in terms of even down to the relationship with other people, that there's aspects of the other that we will never know. And we have to respect the other as other in that sense. So it's interesting because I think you're, although you're coming from a spiritual perspective and, and, and obviously Kierkegaard is spiritual in that sense as well, but from a philosophical perspective, there seems to be an alignment with particular traditions in, in, in continental philosophy. Um, I don't know if that, any of that makes sense. It's just a thought that, 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 that it's just some thoughts that were coming to me as you were speaking. So does that resonate in any way or? It does. Yeah, no, it does resonate with me very much. So, yeah, mm. for me, um, you know, in the end of the day, we're all on a personal journey. Um, and because of the evolution has sort of spat us out onto this planet, we can see that each of us is different and therefore we each have a different, unique calling that really only we can identify at the end of the day. Um, so as part of living out that calling, we have to try and find a sort of um, uh, an infrastructure around our minds to support this, this calling or this destiny that we feel we might have. Um, so that would be one thing. You know, religion, religion, I think, can be thought of, because most of us have, I suppose, been born into a religion and grown up in it, is that it's a sort of um, a scaffolding around us. So it, it helps us in the course of creating our own lives, building our own lives. It gives us a scaffolding uh, to work within. But at the end of the day, a bit like Seamus Heaney's poem, I think it's called The Scaffolding, um, you take down the scaffolding and you then you then live without it. Um, so, you know, that, in that sense, I, I would say no matter what religion you're born into, it can be, uh, it can be a fertile soil to an extent um, for you to grow, grow your spiritual life in. But at a certain point, um, you have to become independent of it, I would say, and find your own path. Mm, absolutely. And Dara, one thing that very much appealed to me in the book was this notion of the heroic journey. I'm thinking about going on one myself at the moment, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so sure how, how I'm... How, how I'm well, first off, I'd like you to um, elucidate. So Dara, what is the heroic journey and how does one undertake such a journey in the age of COVID? Well, interestingly, the heroic journey is part of modern Jungian psychology. You know, it's the word used. Um, so it's part of modern psychology and it's it's really a concept of personal growth and what Jungian psychologists call individuation, where you gradually become more and more the unique person that you're meant to be and you have a unique a journey or, yes, journey is a good word for it because, you know, people talk about getting stuck in their lives so there's that sense of I'm not moving anymore. I'm stuck. And the heroic journey is this idea that you need to find a way out of that stuckness because our life is a constant journey. We're mo moving through the years. We're getting older. Our situations are changing. Our families are growing up. Our careers are moving on or we're retiring and so on. Everything is changing. The climate is changing, you know. Um, so we have to really be able to monitor our own change. And if that change stops and gets stuck at a certain point, that's where we perhaps need a bit of heroism because the heroism requires you to face your fears, to break out of what's holding you in. There's a lot of phrases for it, like slaying the dragon, like um, you know, pushing out the envelope, facing your fears, 
And thankfully, in our own Irish and Celtic tradition, there's a whole history of the heroic journey going back to pagan times, the uh, the journey of of Bran. Um, they were generally called Imram, I M R A M, and they that sort of idea of, of it's an idea of wandering, really. Um, was continued in the early Celtic Christian tradition where the monks, the Irish monks, were great at wandering. They wandered all over Ireland and visited all the monasteries that were in existence, found the people in the monasteries that could teach them something or whatever it was they had to learn. And then when the spirit blew again, off they went, wandered another bit. And it led them then to wander all over Europe and found monasteries all over Europe. And I have visited some of these places today and they still remember the contribution of these monks that were over a thousand years ago and yet they still remember them today like these people ended up living extraordinary lives by simply following the heroic journey in other words allowing themselves to be exposed to new experiences to new situations something that would challenge them something that would force them to learn force them to grow force them to develop it's all of that and uh, that's that is the heroic journey um in, t- in today's world we see it even now I got back in touch with a friend of mine whom I hadn't been in touch with for 20 years. And I was asking him, how are, how are his family, who were kids at the time when I had known him? And he said, oh, well, they're growing up now. He said, I have a young fellow who went off and did an engineering degree. And then when he qualified, he went off wandering. And that's actually the word he used, which sort of rang a bell for me way, way back through the centuries in Ireland where people did wandering. And his son went off wandering in the world, eventually came back, he said, settled down and, uh, and got into business. You know, so this wandering is still part of our psyche. It's this this idea of getting out there, experiencing the world, finding out exactly who we are, and then having the courage to live who we are and to do what we have to do. And sometimes that's very painful. Like it was extremely painful for me. I knew that I had to leave the church. I knew I had to leave it. But I knew also that I was risking losing my family, that they might never speak to me again. It turned out, thankfully, they did, but not without a lot of pain. Um, so like that's what I'm talking about the heroic journey is that ability to know what's what's right for you and then to do it uh, regardless of the pain or the cost because you know that's what you have to do mm. and and how, how how does one go about that journey in the age of COVID then? Well actually the age of COVID uh, is something that might have contributed a lot I expect to see a lot of stories from people coming out of COVID who use the lockdown and the cutoff from everybody and all the activities as an opportunity to reflect on their lives and where they were in it mm. and to come out of COVID having a completely different impetus to their life and having the courage to do something very different. Mm. I remember years ago, you possibly don't, uh, maybe it's before your time, there was a bank strike and all the banks were closed and there was no money available <laughs> and lots of people were out of work. And I still meet people today whose lives changed as a result of that because they, they got time out to think and in the process of that time out, they reevaluated their lives. And when they came out of the bank strike, they took a completely different direction and they've never mm. looked back. You know, so COVID can be the same for people. They can use it to their advantage. Mm. It's, it reminds me of a, a quite famous story about, um, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher telling this story, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, t- I'll try and tell it anyway. This, um, Victorian uh, explorer found this uh, African tribe who were who had a, a, maybe a rich resources and they were traveling up one of the largest rivers in in Africa and he he the tribe were actually transporting helping him to transport it and on maybe the third or fourth day they stopped 
and they stopped for maybe 24 hours and he couldn't understand what was happening and um he went to them he eventually got frustrated and got cross with the the the, the chief and said why why what's going on and he broke down beside him and the chief said we've traveled for three days without stopping now we've now we have to stop to let our souls catch up so <laughs> uh, it's uh it's uh, it sounds that perhaps that's is that that's a way of that's perhaps the way we can understand COVID in a way that these seismic events sometimes that they disrupt our lives in such a way that they can be positive. Obviously, there are negative aspects to it, but there is that element of stopping, of slowing down, of allowing ourselves to just be present and allowing our soul to, to catch up in that sense. And is I think that seems to resonate with what you're saying. With absolutely. Yeah, the, one, one of the lovely pieces of advice from the Dalai Lama is that everyone should go somewhere they've never been to before for one or two weeks, at least once every year. No, throw yourself out into something different, a new experience, open yourself up to to new possibilities and just see what happens. And um, it'll help to keep you fresh and alive. You come back with new ideas, fresh ideas, new energy and so on. Excellent, excellent advice. So I really found your notion of faith to be quite interesting. And I think... It seems to me that the way you outline it is that there's a misunderstanding or the way dominant the dominant religions have misunderstood faith or at least that they've uh, propagated the notion of faith in such a way as that it ties us to their with their belief system. Um, you seem to have a different version of faith, if I'm correct. I'm wondering, could you tell me about that faith or what, what you understand faith to be and also how the dominant religions have misunderstood the notion of faith. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. One of the fascinating things, and it's it's sort of depressing in a way, is that if you read the Gospels and you read what Jesus was trying to say, presuming that the Gospels are an authentic expression of what he was trying to teach and say, you have to presume that, um, then what Jesus was saying and the and the, the sort of the, the, the message that he was putting out is very different from what ended up in the churches. It's almost like the opposite. Um, for example, Jesus in general was inspirational, uh, whereas the churches tend to be prescriptive. So in Jesus being inspirational, he, um, he told stories, parables, and he told them in such a way that he let you ruminate on them and come to your own conclusions. And there's evidence in the Gospels of people coming back to him and saying, what does that mean? And he won't really tell them. He sort of insists, you've got to work that out for yourself. There's the story. There's a lesson in the story. You find out what that lesson is for you. So his whole approach, he wasn't at all prescriptive. He didn't insist that anybody believed anything, as far as I can figure out. Um, And yet St. Paul, the first of the theologians, if you like, comes along and he says, in order to be saved, you've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He makes that clear again and again in his letters. You know, so he's being prescriptive. And he goes on in lots of other texts that he's written uh, within the epistles that he wrote. Uh, other prescriptions, like, for example, um, that he, he recommends that everybody be celibate like himself or nobody get married. Um, or that women have a sort of a more uh, a subdued role than men. Like that all comes through in his writings as well. None of that comes through in, in the teachings of Jesus. Um, so when you then come to Jesus and his talking about faith, you get exactly the same contrast between 
what Jesus appears to be talking about when he's talking about faith and what the churches, plural, uh, seem to be talking about when they're talking about faith. It's clear that the churches, as you've said, think of faith as a, as a subscription to their set of beliefs. When I was growing up, my parents used to talk about people who had lost their faith in inverted commas. And a person to my parents who had lost their faith was like, was like talking about somebody who had cancer and who was going to die. Like in a spiritual sense, these people had cancer. They'd lost their faith. They were going to live. They were going to burn in hell for all eternity. That was the message I got growing up. And that's what faith was said to mean to me growing up. And when somebody was dying, if I was told if I ever came across somebody dying on the street after an accident or something, go over and say an act of faith in their ear. And that act of faith was, of course, the Apostles' Creed. I would say, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and so on. That was to say in there so that when they reached the gates of heaven, they would have declared their orthodoxy and they would therefore be admitted into heaven. That's the whole mind concept of faith that I grew up with. But then when I read the Gospels and read what Jesus appears to be trying to say about faith, it's clear that's not really what he means at all. He never links the word faith with having to believe in something, even in himself. Um, he says again and again, your faith has healed you. So it's your belief that somebody out there or that's, that something can happen to make a difference in your life. That's what's made the difference. So it's to do with you, not with Jesus or anybody else, not with religion, not with your beliefs. It's to do with you personally. And he doesn't put any requirements in that faith other than that you have it. So it's like, I would retranslate the word faith as confidence or belief in life itself or belief that you can do anything. You know the way you meet some young people and they just believe they can do it and they have a tremendous vision for their life and they're just going to go out there and do it. They're full of faith, even though they mightn't ever go to church because they believe that life is going to facilitate them and they're just going to make it happen and everything is going to align. All the stars in their universe is going to align to make it happen. Um, so that's the faith I think that Jesus spoke about and you can find it again and again because it's lots of examples of him talking about faith in the scriptures and look, look at the lovely one uh, the Sermon on the Mount you know where he talks about don't be worrying about things of this earth don't be worrying about what food you're going to eat or what clothes you're going to wear even the, even the flowers are more they're more arrayed in their beauty than Solomon in all his glory. Do you know, he talked about that. He said, don't be worried about things of this earth. Just get on with the finer things of life and aim for the bigger picture and everything else will work out for you. That's, to me, a good summary of what Jesus was talking about when he talks about faith. And all of us can have that. And it doesn't require a subscription to any set of beliefs. Mm. So just out of interest, is there a similar notion to be taken from the pre-Christian Celtic tradition? Is there is there something in the the pagan element of, that could be associated with that notion of faith? or Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, one of the beliefs in the ancient tradition, um, which was expressed, I suppose, best by the Celtic monks, but probably came from much further back, was this notion that you that each of you have a destiny, that each of you have a sort of um, a journey to make, and it's sort of out there, but you have to, have to discover it and you have to then live it. Um, and... I think that's what motivated so many of these people, um, the monks and the, and the previous uh, people before Christianity, to get out there and be heroic. And, you know, in the Irish tradition, the key word is not faith. It's not being holy. It's not being sinful, being sin free. 
It's not an, an emphasis like that at all. The emphasis is on heroism. Heroism is the big idealistic challenge that's presented within the Celtic spiritual tradition, both in the pagan and in the Christian. Uh, you be heroic. You get out there and you do it. You live life to the full. You experience it to the full. You you don't allow your fears to hold you back. You face your fears. You you kill the dragon and so on. So it's very exciting, if you like, uh, as a sort of philosophy and as a spirituality. It's fascinating. Um, uh, really interesting. So I have four dogs and uh, I take them walking regularly now they're not they're the family dogs but i take them walking every day but i take them walking you to the same place and uh it's this it's a we call it the burrows but it's a, a fairy fort and uh it's quite a large fairy fort and there's a it's covered in uh trees um, but at the center is an oak tree and there's something very um when i'm there that i feel there's a, I always a feeling of I'm not alone when I'm there. I'm I'm there with the dogs and I'm there with the dogs physically, but I'm not alone in the sense that there seems to be I undergo an experience and usually it inspires me. I'm a traditional singer, so it inspires me to sing as well. So I it's it also no one's around, so they can't they can't hear me. But but uh, I, I there's something about that place and the you talk about thin places in 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 your book and I think that perhaps that is one of the thin places that I've experienced. Um, I'm wondering, could you tell me what thin places are and what insights can we gain when we have encounters or when we encounter such places? Indeed. Yeah, well, there are thin places, I think, that are personal to us, personal that in the sense that I would find it to be a place where I can experience the presence of something or I can experience wonder or just uh, a lovely positive energy. And then there are other thin places which, if you like, have been designated for us by our culture and our tradition or even by our neighbours or by the people who've lived here before me. Um, and if I go there, I may experience something similar to what many other people have experienced before me. And I would say in your case, it's the latter, that, you know, a, a fairy mound in our tradition goes way, way back to the Tuatadanan, like that's way back into the mists of time. Um, and apparently the Tuatadanan were defeated by the Celts who invaded Ireland and had to had to fight against them at the Battle of Moitura. And because the Tua de Dana were defeated, um, they agreed that those who had survived the battle would no longer live on the land of Ireland. Instead, they would go underground. And um, these fairy forts now represent their presence among us underground. So you see how a lovely sort of legendary story or mythical story has developed to try to explain this sense of presence on our landscape. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Irish people feel it and not just, not just at the fairy forts or these very ancient forts, but certainly there, uh, but also at many other places the, uh, like, like at the, um, some of the thin places that are traditional in the Celtic tradition are the places where two elements of nature meet. So for example, a river in the land or uh, cliffs connecting the land with the sea or the top of a hill or a mountain connecting the land with the sky and so on. So there are all those sort of thin places or a holy well connecting the land with, with them. Well, for, I suppose, these ancient people, the ancient Irish people, the well was the entrance into the womb of Mother Earth. So it had all that symbolism to it of being going to the source of where life comes from in a feminine form. And even even the oak tree that you we find at the centre 
of that rainfort, that has huge echoes from our own tradition. Because the oak tree, of all the trees in Ireland growing uh, over the centuries and over the millennia, uh, was sort of the favourite among the Druids, especially among the Druids, and maybe to some extent among the early Christians as well, because you have Kildare, the church built of the oak tree where Bridget had her monastery, and you have you have Derekulum Kill, that's the, the forest of oak where Cullum Kill built his monastery. So, you know, it's still around. Um, mm. But the oak tree represented uh, lots of things. It represented the presence of gods, of three different gods, actually, in our midst. There was a triple god, not just one. Um, I don't think I remember all their names for you now. Asus, Tyrannus, and a third one. Um, so it's like people went to the oak tree to get in touch with these different divine energies who had been given these three different names and who represented different aspects of life. So one of them represented uh, masculinity and your sexuality as a male. One of them represented uh, the tribe. And one of them, I think, represented um, the ability to survive through the winter, every winter, and, and go through onto the next spring. Um, so they're all interrelated. So the oak tree has a huge amount of um, associations in our tradition with the other world. And that, that's a word that, that was used constantly, of course. The other world is this world, which we can access easily through our senses. And then there's the other world, which we know is out there, but we only experience it occasionally. And when we do, it's sometimes a surprise. Mm-hmm. And it comes, the experience comes through a sense of presence, as you get at the ring fort, or a sense of wonder, or a sense of mystery or magic about, about a place or an event or, or a person or, or an animal or anything. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, certainly uh, when I was reading, <clears throat> I really resonated with me. But I I experience that thin place I, you talk about. You can experience when you're lying and sleep at night, <laughs> and there's a presence. You you <laughs> can feel a. I I experience. I think when you live in, so I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong here, but definitely I feel. Um, uh, personally, uh, this is on personal level. I seem to experience presence. Uh, quite regularly so when i go into a new house uh particularly old houses i always get a sense of the feel for that place so i always sense whether there's something something's gone wrong in that house or something or that it's it's been a a, a pleasant place uh but i, I generally I, I get that feeling with uh, quite regularly but i feel it strongest when i'm in that ring fort uh there is certainly something quite mysterious uh scary to some extent uh certainly un- un- unnerving like if that makes sense like at the same time i don't feel frightened but i feel slightly unnerved by it because i know it's something very very different to me but at the same time i feel connected to it does that does that make make any sense oh yeah that makes total sense to me and i think some people maybe yourself included are more sensitive to these things than others are um i know my wife is extremely sensitive to to any energy that's in a room or a building or a site or anything. And it can sometimes overwhelm her and she has to move, move back a bit as she feels sort of swamped by it. Um, especially energies even off people. Um, so she feels it in, in all sorts of ways. Me less so, but I certainly do feel it. Um, there's a particular place on the island where I now perform most of the spiritual ceremonies that I do. And that to me has a lovely, gentle, welcoming, soft, warm energy to it. And that's what I feel there when I go there every time. 
So it's my favorite place, if you like, for ceremonies. Mm. For lots of other reasons as well, by the way, but um, that's certainly one of them. There's a feeling of peacefulness and gentleness and calm uh, and warmth to it. So um, I think probably earlier peoples were much more sensitive to that energy of place than we are today because, of course, we're distracted by lots of things and there's lots of things going on around us, telephones ringing and all sorts of stuff that maybe is disrupting that energy. But I think in the past, uh, Irish people in particular, you know, really were sensitive to that energy. And probably they built their homes on very positive energy points and they knew where the ley lines were, the energy lines in our on our landscape were, and they built roads along them or they connected one place to another through them and so on. Like there's a, there's a little old church in on our island here called Chapel Bennett. And it's one of about 10 churches on the island. And generally speaking, the Celtic churches were all built on an east-west axis. That's because uh, the sun rises in the east and you sort of face the rising sun to represent the risen Jesus uh, when, when the sun rose in the morning. That was sort of the thinking behind it. So all the churches are built east-west, but this one isn't. It's more northeast-southwest. And I've read many books about the theories as to why it's not aligned the way all the others are, but I found out myself why, at least I think I found out why. I went up there one December 21st, so the winter solstice, to see if it was a lovely bright day like today, to see if it was aligned with the setting sun on the winter solstice. That has to be it, you know, in my certainty, but I was wrong. When I went up there, the sun wasn't at all aligned. <laughs> but okay. because, it, because it was a clear day, I could look down the side wall of the church and I could see Dingle Peninsula further south. And on the very edge of Dingle Peninsula is Mount Brandon, which is a holy mountain called after St. Brendan the Navigator, who, by the way, is one of the heroes of the, of the, the hero's journey, if you like. is the one heroic journey that you could say, well, he definitely was heroic in what he did when he went out on that little boat. Um, so it seems to me absolutely makes sense that this little church because it was up on top of a hill and could see the tip of the mountain of St. Brandon, St. Brandon, which is a holy mountain, that it decided, the builders decided we'll align it to that and connect with the energy of the Dinga Peninsula and all that's going on down there in terms of monasticism and hermits and so on. Mm. So that's another example of like connecting energies of place. Mm. No, that's that's fascinating that that energy our ancestors would have felt more intensely, but that it guided us in terms of how we structured our physical environment. Exactly. This, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the, I'm wondering, and I know it's probably a big question, it's probably a question that's, but what is that energy? Is, is it possible to answer that question or is it something that is just a mystery that we have to, um, we have to accept it as a mystery and something that we'll never fully understand? Or is are there aspects of it that we can actually make it more tangible in terms of how we understand it? Oh, I, I think we can make it more tangible in today's world. One of the things that I get from modern science is this idea that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So there's an energy that's sort of combined in you that makes you who you are. And when you die, we know, let's speak about myself, when I die, my body will go into the ground or whatever way it, it goes back into the earth. It, it certainly dissipates and all, all the physical aspects of myself go. But what about the energy that held me all together? According to the scientists, that that's can neither be created nor destroyed. Mm. Uh, so it, it goes out into the general pool of energy. And maybe out in that general pool of energy, for a while it continues to 
be be connected to itself, to know that it continues to be some sort of an entity in the broader entity. Um, you know, if you if you drop uh, what's a good example? I don't know. Uh, if you drop a drop of oil into into water, maybe it doesn't immediately dissipate. Do you know what I mean? So um, I think it's possible that the sort of concentrations of energy in in ring forts or mm. even when we die, you know, we, I meet people again and again who after somebody very significant for them has died, they continue to feel the presence of that person, not all the time, but at certain moments. And even I would say that's probably the root of the whole teaching of the resurrection of Jesus, because it's clear in the Gospels that there's not really great unity in how his resurrection and his reappearances are explained. Mm-hmm. Some people say he reappeared on the day he on the day he died, or it's sort of three days after he died on that first day. Other people say it was a week later. Other people say St. Paul says it was years later when he appeared to him. And and yet they're saying that he res- he went up to heaven after nine days, you know, so there's, there's a bit of confusion there. And I think that's because maybe they experienced him in, in the way we sometimes experience people who've died ourselves, that they come back to us in some, in some way, uh, maybe only for a while after the death or, or maybe more long-term who, who knows? I don't know, but um, I've met many people who have that experience. So that's how I would try to explain it. I'm not saying yes. it's an answer, but it's a way to try and understand it. Could could we say that it's a in some ways a, um, it's a resi- it's the residue of of a kind of a, of an emotional energy? I mean, an emotional energy in that there seems to be some way that when when I experience it, I always experience it. I experience it through your body, obviously, but there's a resonance in at this most fundamental level of myself and my being in terms of I feel. If I might, I lived in a so when I was living in the UK, I lived in this house and it was built in the 1800s as a, it's a labor, it was a laborer's cottage built for, there was a tannery just down the road. It was built for the tannery. But I, I always felt this really, I never felt unnerved in that house. I always felt really relaxed and calm. And it was just the energy of the energy of the place. Whereas, for example, in the fairy fort, uh, I feel unnerved. I don't feel frightened, but I feel that there's something, there's something, something's not like it, a lot of, a lot has happened there. So there's a lot of mixed energies and it feels very emotional. It feels like, you know, you feel it's an emotion. It, it isn't, it's a, it, the fairy fort is a conflict of emotions in the house. It was more of a, this constant feeling of peacefulness. Um, but so it means it seems to me to be some sort of residue, residue. So you you're kind of, of an emotional energy. Is yes. that yeah? I'd be, yeah. I'd be I'd be sort of agreeing with you. Yes, yes. And of course, yeah. it leads on to this whole idea of houses being haunted or energies being in a house when somebody moves into them that they're not comfortable with, and they they need to have some sort of ritual performed in the house to get rid of it. Yes. Um, so and you know there are people who do that for them. Um, so yeah, I I do think that's that's a reality i mean for me what i've come to realize is that the reality is your experience i mean you somebody can tell me to believe in this that or the other and i how am i sure that they're right i they could be right and they might be right i mean all the religious briefs in the world none of them have ever been proved either right or wrong you know, so mm. there's, there's really no certainty in religious beliefs but what i can be certain about is my spiritual experience because that's something I feel, 
you feel mm-hmm. something up at that ring fort. That's something that's a reality for you. Nobody mm-hmm. can tell you you didn't have it because uh, you, you know you had it. You, you're certain about it. And all that has to be done and what you're trying to do with me in this conversation is sort of find a way to understand it or to explain it. That bit is not necessarily right or wrong. You know, there's, there's various ways of interpreting it. And you might mm-hmm. talk to somebody different tomorrow and they'd have a different interpretation. And who's right and who's wrong? I don't know if we'll ever know. But you might end up subscribing to one particular thesis over another because it appeals to you more. That's what we do. So I'm saying what we subscribe to in terms of beliefs is our own business. And we shouldn't allow anybody to tell us that there's only one solution and we must believe that or we're damned. We should not allow mm-hmm. that to happen to us. But what we can hold on to and be certain about is our own experience. And that is the fundamental in the Celtic spiritual tradition. And by the way, there's a very old name for it. It's called mysticism. It's living in the mystery, not always wanting the answers, but certainly uh, experiencing it and maybe asking the questions. That's fine. Dara, I could go on and on and on, which it's <laughs> fascinating. It's such a fascinating, it's so fascinating. But I, I feel like if it'll be a nightmare to edit this if I don't, <laughs> if I don't, if I don't end it soon. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I think, I think, I think that was, a, I think that's probably a good place as anywhere to, yes, to, it is. to end it. Yeah, um, it is. I have one last question, if that's okay. Sure, um, sure. Dara, I think I'm going to ask this. I think maybe there's two parts to this question because I think that you clearly have a lot of wisdom from the Celtic tradition in terms of just able to draw on sources of wisdom, but also there's your own personal wisdom. So I, is it all right if I, I break this into two parts okay. I'd like to, or maybe two questions? It's up mm-hmm. to you. First off, I think you've obviously been on a fascinating journey yourself. You left something that was provided, although it, it clearly created a lot of conflict in yourself, but it provided obviously a lot of security and, and uh, in terms of your own community and of your family, you you took um, uh, you, you took the uh, uh, the gargantuan step of leaving that institution to, to do it on your own. So I think the question I'd like to ask in that regard is what life advice would you have to offer the Hutt near the Bog listeners? But also I think then there's also the, the very much this Celtic spirituality, this Celtic tradition, which you've, are um, and a master of a, an expert in. So, what what wisdom is there in the Celtic tradition? What would you what what is there a particular strain of wisdom or a particular fray a particular type of wisdom that you'd like to share with the listeners of the Hunt near the bog? And maybe that's the same question. So, whatever you feel is appropriate, Dara. Yeah, no, it's not the same question. I think there's two different questions there, and I, I'll take the first one foremost. Um, what I'd advise people just in their own personal life is to discover, if they haven't already discovered, what it is that energizes them, what it is that they feel passionate about or even have an inkling that they could feel passionate about it, if, passionate about it if they follow down that road a little bit and be fearless in pursuing that path because that path is going to lead you to great fulfillment and a sense of, uh, a sense of living with the person that you were meant to be. You're going to feel whole. You're going to feel sort of um, full. And, you know, again, I go back to Jesus all the time because I think he really had so many answers for us. You you experience the fullness of life. That's what he wished for people when he spoke to them, that you might experience the fullness of life. In order to experience the fullness of life, you've got to face your fears. 
And another word he used, by the way, was you need to be born again. And I would interpret that. That to me is a poetic phrase. So let's forget about the interpretation that the church has put on it, um, whatever they are. Um, it's a poetic phrase, so you interpret it wherever you like. But for me, it means that you look around you at the womb in which you happen to be living, the boundaries of your world at present, and you say, is there another world outside this? Maybe that I should be born, uh, bringing myself into. It's pretty frightening to go through that that channel into new life, but is there something out there? And should I be heading towards that door and, and moving? Um, so all of those things, I would encourage people to do that. This is your life. This is a complete gift to you from the universe. And you're invited to experience it to the full. So don't allow fears or society's restrictions on you or anything else to hold you back. Go and do it. So that would be my personal advice. Then in terms of the Celtic spiritual tradition, um, Celtic spirituality, like everything else, has been attempted to be hijacked uh, by the churches. And when I was in my earlier stages of my life as a Catholic priest, I, for many years, believed that Celtic spirituality could be absorbed into, Christ into, into Catholicism and Christianity and just become sort of a, a particular interest that people might have within Christianity, the way they might have Medjugorje or some particular saint or something else that they'd be attracted to. Now I see Celtic spirituality as something that's polar opposite to organized religion. Um, and it's a spiritual tradition. And this particular one, the Celtic one, has huge resources for our spiritual life. And I would say that other spiritual traditions have as well. So I'm not singling this one out. I just happen to have discovered this one. And I want to make people aware of it and the resources that are in it. And a lot of those resources are in... Uh, if you will, let's just take the Christian version of it. Um, a lot of those resources are in the way the Celtic monks lived, men and women, where they lived, the wandering that they did, and a lot of the concepts that they had around what was important in life, because it certainly wasn't their belief system. It was something else. Um, so, you know, find your, find your way into the Celtic tradition. Uh, read people like John O'Donoghue, for example, uh, if you come across him, the book Anamkara. And uh, there's, there's lots of other books. There's Philip Newell, who's written other books on Celtic spirituality. And there's plenty of others out there too. Find your way. Look for what's inspiring for you. Look for what energizes you. Look for what excites you. And follow that path. Not to forget to mention your own books, Dara, as well. So, yeah, I, I, which I've read, um, just read uh, your latest book, which is an excellent book and very... Uh, I think it's accessible to all. It's very engaging and very thought-provoking, and I got a lot, a lot of food for thought from it. So I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed our discussion today. And I hope we, I hope we talk again at some point. I hope I run into you. If I'm on the Iron Islands, I'm, cer I'm certainly going to come. I'm going to, to to drop you an email because I'd love to talk further. It's been a fascinating discussion. So, Dara, thank you so much for coming on the Hut near the Bog. You're, you're very welcome, James. And maybe when you meet me, when you come out to the island, maybe I'll have moved on another bit and have different answers for you. Uh, that's, Who knows? That's, that's, the, that's the beauty of life, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. So. Hi, folks. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out www.ashleenpublications.com where you can pre-order Dara's latest book, Holy God, Journey from Belief in God to a Spirituality, and purchase his and Tess Harper's other publications. 
and don't forget to tell your friends about the hut near the bog. Bye! Yeah, my-